Hold it right there. This is Detective Elisa Maza, NYPD, and you're listening to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast to show where normalcy is so overrated. The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York, Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. Greetings, Gargoyles fans. A bit of a new section right now in our first impressions of issue four coming up before we dive into our discussion with um, Sally Richardson about the episode High Noon. And I'm really glad we're discussing today's news ahead of High Noon for a couple of reasons. We'll get there momentarily. But first, on the NECA front, David Xanatos, the unarmored version business suit, went up for pre-order yesterday. And on International Women's Day, I'm going to come back to this momentarily, which I thought was uh, a very Xanatosian thing to do, considering the silhouette of Elisa Maza was shown off at International Last Women's Day. Last year. And we had seen nothing. But he looks cool. He comes with the Eye of Odin. He comes with an alternate head. He comes with a blaster. He looks great. And then, not expecting anything. The I very next anything. day. The very next day. Actually, <laughs> here's how I found out. I was in the kitchen making some dumplings, and my brother walks in and says, hey, did he pre-order Elisa Maza? And I look to him, and I say, <laughs> what? And no, no, I pre-ordered Xanatos. He's like, no, did he pre-order Elisa? She's on Big Bad Toy Store right now. And I'm like, excuse me. We hadn't, we'd seen a silhouette, and then nothing. They didn't show her at any conventions. Nothing. And then all of a sudden, there she is. And she looks fantastic also. She looks Three great. heads. Three heads, a flashlight, her badge, alternate hair. Three heads, and- I only- I only noticed two. What I saw the flowing hair, and the other, and the just the normal hair. What, what's the third head? There's a third one with the hair that's even more normal, quote unquote. More normal, the normalist. <laughs> the normalist. I yeah. I didn't see the third head either. Like I only saw the two. I saw the like- the I saw the cropped photo of the normal one. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I think there are only two heads, which is plenty. Yeah. I, that's a lot of heads. The important thing is Cagney. Yes, Cagney. Cagney yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I know a lot of Gargoyles fans are happy, especially those who back in the day didn't much like that Judge Shredalisa figure that Kenner gave us. But <laughs> that was terrible. But, I, so, I yeah. bought it, but it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. So, Jen, since um, you were... Uh, a little bit miffed a couple episodes ago when we were talking about NECA and the lack of Elisa. How are you feeling about it today? <laughs> I still am upset it took a, it, that we got Xanatos one day before. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's in character for him. He would totally do that. Totally upstage her like that. No, no, um, I'm just happy that we got her. I think she looks amazing and um, and I can't wait to have her in my collection. Same. She's scheduled for July, which means she'll probably come out later. Same with the rest of them when they're scheduled. But soon, but hey, soon enough, she le- leapfrog ahead of Angela, Lexington, Armored Xanatos. All those so. ones that we saw that were like, where's Lisa? 
for like a whole year. Yeah. So who are we going to clamor for next? They haven't announced yet, but we really want my top of my list is probably Fox. Uh, Fox would be a good one. Yeah. In her armor, like her little. Yeah. Yeah. I could see them doing the pack, both versions. (laughs) I'm really happy about it. She looks great. And um, keep bringing it on more NECA more. We love it. And I suppose now we should talk about our first impressions of issue four. I don't have quite as much to say about this one, but it, because it's still the first chapter and it's laying a lot of groundwork. So I'll begin with, holy shit, Dino Dracon is crazy. <laughs> They're like, I feel like we're stacking up people that I'm worried about. Like, um, like I just think it's very well set that a whole bunch can go sideways right now. Mm-hmm. And I'll say this. I love his design. And Greg, did he I love about his this? design. He looks like an inverted version of Tony. So <laughs> that's what I wrote, but he took it a step farther by adding the beard and mustache, which I didn't suggest. And it just looks so cool. Uh, by him, I mean George. Uh, yes. You know, I, I did have the idea uh, of, in essence, the idea that he's got dark hair, but he's older. He's starting to go white. And let's so let's invert it. Instead of having this sort of skunk thing up the middle, which Tony has from his encounters with the gargoyles, Dino has black hair up the middle and then white on the side. Um, that I came up with. But I just took it for granted that he would be clean shaven the way uh, Tony was. And um, George came up with this just incredibly, I, I think, um, iconic look with the beard and mustache that just makes Dino his own yeah. guy. And you feel like he's been in prison for years. And um, and he's not from the fuzzy feather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, 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 he's intimidating. The moment, the moment. I mean, you know, again, yeah. the trick is, is I've been talking about this guy. I, meaning the comic, has been talking about this guy. Various characters have been talking about this guy for three issues, uh, leading up to page two of issue four. And so, you know, does the first impression live up to the hype? I'm sure Pal Joey <laughs> thinks so. <laughs> yeah. Here's how I went with him. First, when he beat up Pal Joey, I was thinking, okay, that was a little bit unnecessary and over the top. But it, the moment it sold me was just that look in the mirror where he notices his, there was niece in the back seat and says, yeah. hello. And, um, and she's just clearly terrified of the man, which we already knew from two issues ago, but seen it here and then we find out obviously he's now the boss of the family and we find out more about the dracons in retrospect i mean tony and tony well tony and antoinette since that's what she prefers their dad was also anthony so i'm thinking someone was a little bit narcissistic is he dead or in prison too i had the feeling he was dead but uh yeah i guess i shouldn't say just Ah. policy you know okay Uh, I mean, I know the answer, but I, I just, uh, if I give this spoiler, then people will go, well, you gave that spoiler. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> and I shouldn't have done that. So if, um, fa- yeah, fair enough, but it's just interesting to see the dynamics. I think it's implied. And- I think it's clearly implied. I'll put it that yeah. way. So fair enough. Draw your own conclusions, but I, I think that, I think it's fairly clearly implied. Yeah. 
and it explains quite a bit about the uh, Dracons as we've seen them. We're we're getting all this info on them, and it's filling in the gaps that we have had. And I'm loving it. And as for Dominic, there's a part of me, and I know you're not going to spoil. It, I'm not asking. I'm thinking, is he really as sharp as ever? Is he really not all there? Is it an, all an act? I mean, the beauty is he can't be certain. I like uncertainty. Lots of ways it could go. And, yeah, yeah. And another reason why I'm happy that we are putting this new section ahead of our high noon episode discussion, because the city honored Rosaria Sanchez and Peter Choi, who last week pulled a five-year-old out of the <laughs> yes. lake in Central Park and resuscitated him. When asked about their heroic act, the teenagers agreed it was the right thing to do. Okay, the city honored a couple of mafia brats. We find that out. <laughs> Now, every time I see this, especially since they're being played up as Romeo and Juliet meeting in secret, and then Ying Pei and Huracan took them home and beat them senseless. Yeah. I liked, and this is, um, I like that we see our, Lexington really hit me in this one. So um, I like that we see that, that, Broadway and and Brooklyn and Lexington are like growing apart as you know they've got different interests and they're going their own ways and then we come down to these thugs that ha- are have gargoyles masks on that are working together as Brooklyn and Broadway and Lexington and I I liked that how I learned I love how George drew I mean, the masks were my idea. The masks. But I love how George drew those masks on those bodies. And I I don't know if you guys have seen his cover for this issue, but it's so cool. I have. It's great. (laughs) And um, I like like to think if this had come out while we still had the gatherings going, that that would be a popular cosplay. Dino glasses and I think Pal Joey as Brooklyn Lexington and Broadway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like like we said Dino's got guts he sees Goliath even though he's wearing the Brooklyn mask and his first reaction was yeah I ain't impressed and he's and he takes him on with uh with a knife in his hand I mean who knows how that would have gone had those choppers didn't show up but I did enjoy Goliath's first reaction quarrymen I I don't think those are quarrymen quarrymen would not be asking do you understand us or whatever I I have a good feeling we know who that is. And I think it's tied in with um, that document that Margot showed earlier in the, earlier in the issue. So um, no, very intense. And uh, that entire, and this kudos to George, his action sequences get better and better. I know there were some people who complained about the action sequence in issue three being anticlimactic, but um, this was just really epic. Just Well, and that's not on George. I <laughs> clear that that's not on George. The anticlimax of, of issues three is action. That's how I wrote it. You know, I mean, they're all in the middle of this fight, and then everyone sort of pauses and they get the answer about the baby, and that they look still. Says, there's Go. so much like uh, there's so much going but, on. There's so much movement. I I just I don't see it. They wanted blood. Oh, I mean, no. in all seriousness, and and another complaint that I have to address that I saw people were complaining about in issue three, the first scene with the heads of the five families, and they were saying each other's names. And I'm thinking, 
Have you watched The Godfather? Have you ever seen a Scorsese <laughs> movie? Have you watched The Sopranos? This isn't the French resistance. I don't know what yeah, they I, want. I, I like it. Yeah, I, I love that one page. It's like my favorite page. I, that's sure. a great I page. And if anything, um, the payoff we got was all the last names in, the, in this issue, especially with those two familiar last names, which yeah. we ended up connecting up with Peter Choi and Rosario Sanchez when they get abducted by Dino and um, that's not going to lead to anything good. <laughs> no, except some great storytelling. I know I'm really eager to see where this is going to go next. Jen, is there anything you have that we didn't I, quite cover? I mean, I it's, it's gorgeous again. Like I'm, I am just thrilled to pieces with this art and the color and um, I'm just loving it. Oh, the writing's okay too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just getting all caught up in the in all the pretties. But hey, yeah, look, like, I'm, like I'm right we're on you, our, honestly, the edge of I our mean, seat. What the heck is gonna happen? Like, oh my gosh, like this guy's a nutbag, and this is going on, and what's up with the helicopters? And like, there's just so much happening. Um, I will say so this time because. I love how George does action. Don't get me wrong. But what always blows me away about George's stuff is that when I give him something really subtle to do and he just, you know, kills with it. It's page 13 where the two kids meet up in Central Park and there's so much personality and there's, and it's just this quiet little scene until the very last line of the very last panel, you know, but, um, I just adore this page. You know, I, I think I wrote one line in the script like, it should feel kind of magical. And I, then I love the little fireflies and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just so wonderful. And, you know, I give a basic description of uh, Rosie and Pete in, in the script, but he's just, you know, brings them to life and they're so unique and so cool. Um, and you just with, with it very little, I mean, it's one page, it's less than a page because the first panel is, you know, you can barely see Rosie there at all. And, and it's really about the lake and, and, and just in this, you know, in six or seven panels, he takes these kids and suddenly we care about them and they're so much fun and they care about each other. I just, this page knocks me out. I love every page in this book and I'm clearly biased. I understand that. But, um, you know, what he does with this one little page of two teenagers meeting up in the park just knocks me out. It really knocks me out. You know, you expect, hey, we got a cool action sequence here. And you, that, you know, you expect him to do great things and and without a doubt what he's done with our three gangsters and the masks is so much fun <laughs> but what really Love knocks it. me out is this little subtle work he does with uh these kids on page 13 so in this comic in this issue page 13 is my favorite issue and what i'm finding striking is that in every issue it's these quiet moments that are really just i, I just love and I, again, I love all the stuff in it, but it, but what's really catches me off guard and just 
takes my breath away each time has been these little quiet scenes that could have been just nothing. Hey, all right, good. I've got a talkie scene that that's not as hard. Let me just get through it. But instead, he just puts so much into he lays out the personalities. These. Like yeah, it's just it's it's beautiful. Uh, this to me, and again, I know I'm biased. I get it. I should shut up, but I won't because because um, again, uh, I wrote the scene, but you know there are a hundred ways to draw it, and ninety eight of them are pretty dull. Um, and George finds that hundred and first way that isn't just not dull, but is actually just, you know, magical. So I just, I love George's work. I do too. He gets better with every issue and I enjoy this. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's fantastic. But I am happy with how the whole issue turned out. I mean, I really wanted after the first three, I really felt like four ramped it up and I really feel like that's happening here. And again, biased, but that's how I feel. I feel like it really ramps up in this issue. Um, oh, I agree. I mean, I've even said to people recently that um, issues one, two, and three, if they had been 13, 14, and 15 of SLG, they, especially issue one, if it had been 13, would have probably been written very differently. But now it really feels like we're no longer info dumping as much and we're in we're back into it really truly where the story is oh yeah things is things is happening i'm excited and this 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 issue definitely made me very eager for the next one Uh uh-huh now that's a cliffhanger (laughs) yeah that's one that there that there is a cliffhanger right (laughs) agreed Uh And on that note, stay tuned for a discussion on High Noon with Sally Richardson, the voice of Elisa Maza herself. And thank you for listening. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie. I'm your co-host, Greg Wachanski, and join me as usual is my partner in crime and co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello. <laughs> and once again, joining us is the co-creator, co-producer, and writer of the first two seasons of Gargoyles, the, the SLG comic book, and the Dynamite comics, Mr. Greg White. That would be me. And joining us, we are very happy to have her here, the voice of Elisa Maza herself, an accomplished actress, an accomplished director, and now an accomplished producer as well, Sally Richardson-Whitfield. Hello, hello, everyone. Hopefully that you will recognize this voice after these many years. (laughs) I'm pretty sure they will. You sound amazing. Mm -hmm. You look amazing. Oh, well, thank you. I'm trying to hold on. It's the filter on the uh, (laughs) computer. No, you do look amazing. Like I may have said before, um, when I was a teen when the show was on and you look younger than I do. Oh, boy. I don't believe any of that, but thank you. (laughs) Anyway, we're so happy to have you here, finally. And um, we like to get to know our guests a little bit. Um, What drew you to acting? And then, I guess, what drew you over into directing? I bring this up also because we had Bill Fagerbachy on about a year ago, and he talked about how he worked with you on a recent project where you directed him, and that sounded like a fun little reunion. 
Well, I started, you know, in school, I started doing theater. And um, as I got out of school, I just kind of realized it was what I was good at. And, you know, uh, growing up in Chicago, you have an opportunity. A lot of movies and TV shows were being shot there um, when I was younger. Did a lot of guest star roles and then was able to save up enough money and move to L.A., and about 24 years old or so, I think, is when I got my first film called Posse. And things sort of, you know, I was very lucky that I was able to just stay acting all those years. And um, somewhere in the last, oh, my God, it's been maybe less than 10 years. I uh, Well, the first time I directed was on Eureka, my, my series Eureka. They gave me an opportunity there. I, uh, uh, and, and then the first time I did it, I realized that this is what I was really meant to do. Maybe all those years of acting, uh, were, you know, was my training ground. So it's been a very, um, exciting transition. And like you said, to direct people that I used to work with. I remember when we did Gargoyles meeting Bill for the first time, you know, such an accomplished voiceover actor. I was just a young baby back then. And um, it was just, you know, to come back around and then get the opportunity to direct him uh, was quite amazing. Now, do you think feel that being an actor helps you with the with directing, like knowing what it's like on the other side of the camera? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it's always good to have the language. I've done so many different TV series and worked with different and worked with so many different directors too. You know, I was really able to kind of choose uh, the best qualities from different directors that I liked and then kind of think about how I would have liked to be directed and kind of bring all of that uh, to the table in my work. So it's, you know, uh, most of the time that is the problem with directors. They come in and all they know are their shots, but they don't necessarily um, know how to direct um, the talent. And in at the end of the day, the performances really are what are, what is important. So I've been able to marry that with now knowing the technical side. And um, yes, but knowing acting has definitely been uh, giving me a step up. All right. We'll circle back to you. We can interject here in a moment. Greg, we're going to come around to you. And since we've got Sally here, this is also, in many ways, this episode of the show and this podcast stars Elisa Maz. So let's talk about the development of Elisa Maz as a character, her origins before Sally, and then we'll talk about when Sally auditioned and got the part. Uh, well, I mean, if you go back far enough all the way to the comedy development of the show before it became the gargoyles that everyone sort of knows and loves today. Um, the gargoyles always had, uh, when they sort of arrived in Manhattan and in the 20th century, you guys may remember the 20th century. It was a couple decades ago, but, um, uh, back then the 20th century was felt very current, <laughs> less so now, but, uh, they always had a, a, a friend and the friend, was sometimes an adult and sometimes a kid. Sometimes there were two kids. We went through all these various iterations. But by the time we got 
down to um, the version of the show, you know, we had nailed the character down fairly well. And she was an NYPD uh, police detective named Elisa Chavez. And when Sally auditioned for the role, that was the name on the sides, the audition sides. Uh, it was Chavez. And um, I, what Sally may or may not know at this point is that we had gone through hundreds of Elisa. Same problem with Goliath. But with both those characters, we had a tremendous problem finding the just the right person to play the part. Uh, it wasn't true for the rest of our cast. We got Brooklyn, Lexington, Broadway, Bronx, Hudson, uh, Demona, even Xanatos, uh, we cast pretty rapidly, all the other regulars. But um, for Elise and Goliath, we just could not seem to find the right people. And at one point, uh, Jamie uh, Thomason and I uh, picked a an Elise and a Goliath that we didn't think were quite right, but we thought they were the best option that we had so far. And, and we felt like we were running out of time. And so we brought them and played the voices for my boss, Gary Kreisel. And Gary just sort of looked at me and said, you're settling, aren't you? And, um, and he, which was absolutely true. And I lied to his face and said, no, no, I think these two could work out great. And he just shook his head and said, go keep working on it or something along those lines. And, um, and then one day uh, Sally just came in and read and it was instantaneous. I mean, we just knew we'd found her and, um, and that was um, well, a fantastic, but also this tremendous relief for us because we were beginning to feel that we might have done a bad job with the character. That maybe the problem was we'd created a character that that didn't work, that no one could play. Um, and we didn't think that was the case, but it felt that way. It was starting. I should say it was starting to feel that way. Um, I did have the advantage of being um, 29 or 30 and ridiculously overconfident um, because I'd never produced anything before um, and thus didn't know just how deep in I was, but, uh, uh, but still it, it, I, it, even with my ridiculous level of arrogance, I was starting to feel that maybe we'd blown it. And then uh, Sally came in and sort of proved to us that we hadn't. And she was, fantastic from the get-go and then separately different day different week probably even i don't even remember now but keith came in and 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 just nailed goliath and suddenly we had our two leads and and that had been a scary time for us because we had just we had all these supported cast members and we didn't and our villains and all this stuff and we didn't have two leads for the show um and then we brought them in to the booth and and then just luckily they just had phenomenal chemistry with each other um, because in those days we recorded everybody uh, was together in the booth uh, recording every episode and you know, particularly all through the first season and it was uh, kind of wondrous you know we'd, we'd write these scripts and again not really know if they'd work or not work or uh, and then our actors would bring them to life and and it was just really kind of a joyous experience for me at least this is such a wonderful story i think for um young actors too because i gotta tell you 
when I went in to audition for this, I like, it was one of those, like, why am I going in on this? There's no way I'm getting this job. There's no way I'm getting a voiceover. I've never done this before. And I literally remember that day and I left there going, huh? I don't know. This felt felt pretty good because I was just so sure I was no way I was getting this. So uh, you never know. You go in there and uh, you do you. And just like you, I was young and I didn't have any. I, I wasn't afraid of anything. And, you know, at that point in my life and, and, and I was such a, you know, I was free as an actress and you just, I was like, okay, this is just, I'm just saying this This is how I see it. I'm not thinking of any rules about it. And, and it worked. So um, that's, uh, you know, for all you young uh, actors out there, uh, don't limit yourself. Uh, I mean, again, uh, you know, there, there's this phrase, ignorance is bliss. And there's some truth to it, you know, because uh, I, I think, you know, sometimes you just you go in and you go for it because you don't know what the rules are. You don't know any better. You know, you don't know, oh, well, people don't do this and they don't do that. So you just do what you think is right. Yeah. And um, for Sally, as a performer, for me as a producer, we probably had some kind of <laughs> that going on, <laughs> uh, you know, and. Uh, and it was magic, you know, it just created a little bit of magic. And then we went on from there, um, you know, uh, Frank and I sat down, Frank Parr, my partner on the show, and I sat down with Sally um, and just had a conversation about her. Just tell us a little something about yourself. And um, one of the things that she told us, um, and if I get this wrong, feel free to correct me, but uh, is that... Um, her background, she had um, both African-American and Native American uh, heritage as part of who she was. And that we found really interesting instantaneously. And we said, okay, let's, um, let's make her biracial. I don't think I even had the word biracial back in 1993, but, uh, <laughs> but that's what we were thinking, you know? Um, and so we, gave uh, Elisa a uh, Native American father who was played by the amazing Michael Horse and um, uh, African-American uh, mom played by the legendary Nichelle Nichols. And um, we got stories out of that, out of Elisa's background, out of her father, Peter's background, uh, her mother, Diane's background. Um, and it also seemed to work for us that the Mazas were a couple who had to bridge um, their differences to make their courtship, their marriage work, to raise their children, et cetera. And that felt right to us in terms of Elisa having to cross even bigger bridges to sort of have a relationship with Goliath. And, um, and, that became a sort of important metaphor for those characters, but for the series as a whole. And that really was a discovery process. And that's one of the things that we tried to do on the show. On the one hand, we had plans. We knew certain things, story points we wanted to hit as we were going, but we also tried very hard, and I think succeeded most of the time, um, in 
staying open to like discover things about our characters and to add things and learn things. And, um, and, uh, so Sally, just by being who she was, not only brought this tremendous performance to the show, but also brought us storylines without even trying really, um, out of, uh, who Elisa became. And that's on top of the fact that Frank took Sally's headshot and sent it to Japan and they redesigned the character to look <laughs> more like Sally, um, which was pretty cool. For was so me. Can you imagine? I was like, Oh my gosh, she looks like me. I have a cartoon character. That looks <laughs> like <me." laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty cool. At the time Real there was no one, character. there was no strong female characters in animation. I mean, like she was so unique. Like she had, you know, this different heritage and she had this uh, badass job and she just never backed down and she was never the damsel in distress. Well, it's, and what was so exciting is that, I mean, for me, is that I feel like it really inspired so many young girls. I would, you know, the, uh, the people who were watching this would come up to me and they were like, oh my gosh, I've never seen myself um in this genre before and uh because i i think i may be wrong i may be like the first like black lead or native you know uh in a cartoon um and people were really excited about that when i you know whenever i would go into any panels that was the one thing they were just you know they they felt that they could see themselves in this world. And um, that has always been something that's made me very proud. I mean, I, I will say, as I say, as a young male who was watching this, that was important for me to see because this character had a tremendous impact on me as well and how I began looking at things like gender and um, racial differences. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, we're all works in progress. Even me, I don't want to say that I'm 100%. We all have work to, to do but at a young age it was just very impactful i was way more open-minded and i grew up in suburbia north of new york city in a white town where there's only one black family in town and i never and i always thought of myself even back then as accepting but still you know this was it was an impact i needed to see it and i'm thankful that you helped bring that to me it was good stuff it was it was uh, it, it it brings back fond memories Fond memories of us all being in the uh, room together. I remember we did some like Disneyland trip all, or Disney World trip. The whole Disney World, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, you, me, Keith, and Marina. Yeah, and uh, my boss Gary Price. Well, a lot of my bosses. We went down to for the world premiere, not the TV premiere, but the world premiere, and. Um, we had uh, two screening rooms at Pleasure Island, which was this multiplex uh, movie theater that was in Disney World, where they showed it. And they, uh, when we headed in, my boss said, okay, uh, Keith, Marina, Sally, you come with me. Uh, Greg, you go to the other theater. I'm like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> um, like, yeah, you introduce the movie over there. I'll introduce it over here. And I'm like, but you, you're taking all the talent with you and he's like yeah um we've got uh all the reporters in here um and the rest and, and then we're filling out the audience uh with uh kids from local schools and and 
and you don't have any reporters. You just, your audience is all kids. And I'm like, so kids are going to care about me. I don't think so. And um, he's like, it's fine. It's fine. So I go in there and I, whatever, I introduce the movie. And um, I probably told this story here already, but you have Jennifer's nodding like Greg, like, yeah. So should I stop and not tell it again? <laughs> Sally hasn't heard it, but you guys have. <laughs> I can stop. Can they boo you? <laughs> We're going to cut to the chase. <laughs> well, the chase is, is that all these kids, they gave all of them because they wanted them in a good mood. They gave them these giant popcorns, each kid. Got a giant popcorn and a giant soda. And popcorn was very salty, which means they were drinking a lot. And because they were drinking a lot, it meant they had to go to the bathroom constantly. So in my screening room, the kids were constantly getting up to go to the bathroom and blocking the view of whoever they were crossing in front of. And and they, were, they, were, they just weren't focused on the film at all. And because this was our edited down movie version of the pilot. And uh the kids, uh, they weren't laughing in the funny parts. They never get, you know, they just didn't seem into the movie at all. And um, I, when I, it was over, I had to go to the other theater where we were having a press conference and they brought all of us on stage. And I was like, and the movie had not worked in my screen room at all. And so I was, felt like I was dead man walking, going just from one part side of the multiplex to the other. And a, bunch of uh, Disney executives came up to me and they had all been in the other screening room with the reporters. And they're like, ah, that was amazing. That was so great. Uh, how was it in your screening room? And I'm like, oh, oh yeah. Like they're like, oh, they were laughing at all the right places. And they, they audibly gasped in some moments. And, <laughs> and, it, it, and the response was fantastic. How was it in your screening room? I'm like, yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty much like that. Yeah, that's pretty much how it went. Uh, and uh, and we went over there, and um, I remember uh, we were up on stage, and and this one reporter uh, was asking about what the show was supposed to be about, and and I tried to thumb for something out about how well you know don't judge a book by its cover. You know, our gargoyles might have appear to be ugly monsters and then this woman adult woman reporter in the audience said i don't think goliath was ugly at all in that kind of voice and the crowd just erupted and it was it was kind of amazing moment and keith was like as only keith could do was like well thank you um, <laughs> That was a, and then with they fell in love with him. <laughs> and then they sent us on this. We went on uh, Tower of Terror, which it was just opening that night, and uh, all these rides and stuff. You have a good memory. Oh my gosh, I literally remember going to a Moroccan restaurant that night. That's it. <laughs> That's all I remember. <laughs> I the, my memory's reinforced. By the fact that I've had that I've told these stories okay, so many okay. times at conventions over and over again. Of course, what that means is that it's the story I remember, not necessarily the facts. Got, so, got um, so you have to take everything I say with a grain of salt. What's a good um, story? It's bringing yeah. good memories. <laughs> Going back to um, uh, just Elisa Maza being something that we did not see. 
um, at that time on, on television and, and what an impact she had on, on young girls, young boys, you know, it just, uh, she was so important. Uh, a friend of ours uh, wrote a little note that they wanted uh, us to read to you. Uh, this is from Andy Ivanovs. Um, and they say, my whole life has been drawn to those characters who have a secret life, a secret love, who are part of another special world. Elisa Maza is all that and more. She's a grown woman, not a wide-eyed teenager. She has a tough job and she does it well. She does not back down from anything. She is, but she is also kind, sweet, and flawed. The writing, acting, and design combine perfectly to make her a real, relatable person. For me, she means so much as a young trans non-binary person who has no idea and no words for how they were feeling. I held on to Elisa in a sort of, if I have to be a girl, I want to be this kind of girl way. I dyed my hair black blue. I wore a red leather jacket for several years. Elisa and the show as a whole got me through a long time when I didn't think being myself would ever be possible. It showed me, it showed that you can be loved and accepted for who you are on the inside. I've made incredible friends in this fandom, and I still have the quick Elisa sketch that Greg Guler drew for me at a gathering. It's in a frame in my workspace. Thank you to everyone who had a hand in creating the show and Elisa and for giving me an amazing role model when they were hard to come by. Wow. That's lovely. You, you have no idea what touches people, you know? And um, I, I do think that she was that rare person that had morals and strength but femininity at the same time. Um, she was tough. Uh, she, you know, she just kind of was like this amazing, well-rounded uh, person that was flawed, but um, but that's what's interesting about people are our flaws. And yeah, it, it, what a <laughs> that's a really beautiful letter. Thank you. Thank you. And thank them. Yeah. For us, definitely. Yeah, Andy's a longtime friend of ours and uh they're a terrific human being and and we knew the first for a time long I time. met first time I met Andy, she was dressed as Elisa Maza. I remember things have come so far and now uh they're an amazing artist too. And uh so like Thank you, Andy. <laughs> Um, should we dive into the episode? And this is an episode where you, where you, Elisa Maza, you have quite a lot to do and a lot of chemistry with several of your castmates in this one, including Keith in two roles. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> and Marina in a kind of negative way, but, <laughs> but that was perfect for those two characters you were playing. <laughs> All right. Um, this is our first episode after the City of Stone four-parter, and we're in the third tier, but we can jump into that a, a little bit later. In the opening scene, Othello, inside of Coldstone's head, brings uh, Desdemona some Scottish heather. And that always stood out to me, because I remember reading an issue of Sci-Fi 
Universe, the November 1995 issue that Bryn Chandler did an interview, and she recalled getting a call at home from an artist for a reference material for Scottish Heather, and Bryn said, just draw a flower, and the artist insisted that it needed to be Scottish Heather, so Bryn had to fax a picture over, and the amount of detail that everyone involved just put into this show, and that's one of the reasons why it has such an impact. Everyone involved cared. You all cared about what you were doing. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was that kind of show. We, uh, we frankly, just set out to make the kind of show we wanted to see and then crossed our fingers that other people would want to see it as well. Um, and But what that meant is, is that, you know, the details matter. Uh, it, you know, every little thing that we can that can contribute in a positive way to telling the stories we tried to do. I'm not going to pretend we always succeeded, but we tried like hell to, to get it all in there. Um, So that doesn't surprise me. Well, I had a maturity, you know, the show has a maturity. It's not, you know, uh, and the stories had depth and, and meant something. And, um, you know, a lot of shows do not, a lot of real shows with people don't have that. I do like that little scene with Lexington and his laptop. There's some, some Easter eggs there. I believe Greg, some uh, animator snuck your name into that laptop. Yep. The, yeah. The, the you passwords. Know. <laughs> Weissman all is the a little, password All the attempt. little details matter. And then, you know, some people decide to add details that we don't actually want. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it happens. It's all right. There have been worse things in my career that animators stuck into one of my shows without asking <laughs> so that's the least of it yeah and speaking of uh this show as we all know got censored a little bit when it was on cable you would think network well not network syndication would be censoring this but no it was cable at 11 o'clock at night but when that scene where lisa gets thrown against the wall her head first they cut the impact scene and to this day i still have no idea why <laughs> it's available there on dvd and on Disney Plus, but it's just um, one of many weird bits of censorship that don't Disney sense. and Cable don't did. Don't make any sense whatsoever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sa- Sally, I'm sure you've encountered that in your career directing for television and uh, movies. Oh, there's a lot of things that get cut uh, or cut out of a script before it happens that you're like, who cares? But, you know, uh, legal reasons. It, it's 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 it, it's all complicated when you get behind the scenes, the politics. <laughs> yeah. Although I do like when she comes to and she's got a good scene where she's talking to herself. And Sally, you did that quite well. Is it a was it difficult back then to do a scene where you had to just talk to yourself? You're not bouncing dialogue off of another character. You're just thinking it loud. Well, you know, later on, um, you know, though we did start doing everything in one room, eventually uh, there, you know, there are definitely times when you're doing it by yourself. Um, You know, there were times when I had other, I was on, I think I was on another series for a while. I was out of town working. So I'd have to uh, pop into a studio out of town and do my stuff, you know, pretty much, you know, like I think we were you know, we were just live with each other being directed over the phone. So you get used to just doing these 
these lines in the blind. And, uh, but that's the fun thing about animation. I can have one line and do it five different ways. And they can, you get a do over. (laughs) Yeah. I can, you know, if the, if the line is, um, I need to go to the store, I can go, I need to go to the store. I need to go to the store. I need to go to the store and you can just give them. (laughs) And that was the one thing I would love about doing this. I could just go, okay, here's five different ways, plug it in whatever way works the best um, in the balance of things. It's a fun way to, it's a fun way to act. (laughs) Nice. When this episode first aired, and this is mostly directed at Greg, I was shocked to see Damona and Macbeth again so soon. The way City of Stone had just ended, they were taken away from the Weird Sisters. I mean, I didn't think they were permanently gone. I just thought it would be a little while before we saw them again and followed up on that. And here they I, I are. Think, I, I think that our intention was for more time to pass. Um, but my memory is foggy at best. But in essence, we had entered the next tier of stories. And we had sort of made a deal with. Uh, production that in this tier uh any story that appeared within this tier should be able to air in any order within the tier um and what you'll may also notice is this was you know up to this point every episode had been directed either by uh one of our japanese directors at walt disney animation tokyo or by frank parr himself personally um and you'll notice this is the first episode that uh, Dennis Woodyard directed. So my guess is is that while Frank was busy um, finishing up City of Stone, Dennis was getting started on his first episode in it, and so it was just the first episode ready. Um, and there was no reason not to air it. You know, in other words, it it fit into the chronology just fine. It didn't throw anything off um within the tier and so it got moved forward for that reason um i'm guessing i don't have a specific memory of that but that is logical to me i think in an ideal world we would have waited a little bit the weird sisters go off at the end of city of stone with demona and Macbeth. we don't know what they're doing with them or why ideally i'd like would have liked the audience to forget about Demonia and Macbeth for a few episodes. And then when they show up again, um, and then when you see at the end of the episode that the weird sisters are still in some way controlling them, uh, casting spells on them, um, it would be this big mystery. And that would lead us toward the Avalon three-parter that's coming up. Uh, But, you know, it worked this way too. So they show up immediately, but there are a lot of mysteries. Why are they working together? Last time we saw them, they were literally trying to kill each other. Now they've partnered. Um, when you hear dialogue between them, there's clearly no love lost between them. And yet they're working together. Why is that? And then by the end of the episode, they're back at each other's throats and they're about to kill each other when uh, the weird sisters show up and sort of put a stop to it. And we're like, oh, they're still in control. What's going on? So you have all these mysteries. So it still works because now you've got a bunch of episodes before Avalon to sort of forget about Demona and Macbeth. That 
and forget I'm overstating it, but you get the idea that your attention is drawn somewhere else. And, um, and we had probably originally planned to put high noon more toward the middle end of this tier. Uh, instead it wound up being at the very beginning of the tier, but the end result is the same. They come in, you ask all these questions, you do not answer them. And now attention will move on to other things until we can get back to them at Avalon. And so that's kind of how it worked out. I'm guessing. Um, As an an audience member, I thought it helped with the off balance feel that we, and by extension, the characters were supposed to feel you had this big right uppercut that was city of stone. And then this left hook right afterwards. You just aren't prepared for it. It also really helps that this is one of the best looking episodes of the the show animation on this one and just the little details it Mm. is just gorgeous like the moment where goliath uses his wing to tap on the camera like in the concave and you know just it was just absolutely gorgeous that's that's always a fun beat i also think i really want to hand it to the animators in japan you know we complained during city of stone of demona's age model being inconsistent and stuff like that. So here you have Elisa and she is, you know, we're making a big point about how exhausted Exhausted, she is, how she hasn't slept in 48 hours. And, and I remember Michael Reeves and I having this long discussion about, all right, well, we knocked her out unconscious is being unconscious, the same as being asleep. Like, (laughs) yeah, she's been out cold for a couple hours. Does that mean that she's rested now? And we decided, no, no, that's totally different. I have no idea. You know, this was pre-internet days or at least pre-us, pre-Google days, you know. So uh, we were just sort of talking it out. We came to the conclusion that it was different, that she wouldn't (laughs) have rested by being knocked out cold. Um, And I I think that was the right decision. (laughs) Right. And then, you know, so she gets up and she's so exhausted and she finds out from Demona herself that um the gargoyles are basically captured and Demona is inviting her very openly to walk into a trap and she is so tired um and they get this subtle you know dark circles under her eyes and and that kind of subtle animation and model shift that and like so hard our amazing get. voice actress here selling that exhaustion. Yes. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. You just are dragging with Elisa through this whole episode. Like, give this girl a break. <laughs> uh, it, you know, the more we talk about this, I just get so excited. I think I'm going to have to binge watch from the beginning again. Just all on Disney Plus. <laughs> Just to relive it, you know, it's been so long or, you know, or, you know, Greg, uh, I am a director now. Um, I can be Elisa's mother in uh, in, in our uh, feature. <laughs> in the live action feature. I would love that. I have, uh, just to be 100% clear, no control over that whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, but I would love to make a live action feature, and uh, and uh, you and Frakes can fight over who gets to direct the thing. Um, uh, 
Done. <laughs> I, I'm putting my money on Sally right now. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> but and I'm uh, not just saying that because she's here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'd love to do it. And there was a time where uh, we were working on a live action feature. So, yeah. Back in the day, you you know, I mean, back when the show was being made, and, and you could have played Elisa live yeah. on camera, but. Uh, um, it didn't happen. And, and I don't know, I don't know if it'll ever happen. It feels like it should, but, um, they don't actually consult with me on that kind of thing. So, no. all right. I'll call Disney. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. From your lips. <laughs> and this is also the big reveal of Demona's human form. Yeah. We saw it briefly at the very end of the mirror, but, this is our first time really seeing it. I remember the first time. I actually think I had forgotten about it by this point. And then, so as such, I did not recognize her in human form when she came in disguised as a cop, escorting Macbeth in handcuffs. And then when I realized it was Macbeth for a brief second, I was like, wait, was that up? Because we had seen Banquo and Flans before. And then I was thinking, no, she looks too, uh, this is going to sound horrible. I apologize. <laughs> too feminine to be Flans. Flans is kind of a... Uh... Yeah, she's butch. What's the word I'm looking for? She's butch. She's she's okay. And yeah, she would crush and, you with her thighs. Yeah, and well, then she's also she... like six foot five or something like that, <laughs> right. way taller. But um, yeah, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, that was the game. You know, we didn't want the audience to recognize Demona, and frankly, with her hair tied back and a police hat on. Um, I don't know how anyone could recognize her. It's only when she takes that hat off and you get Frank Parr's, you know, wild, uncontrollable hair, red yeah. hair, Demona <laughs> hair that you're like, oh, suddenly you're like, well, of course that's Demona. But, uh, and it doesn't matter what uniform she's wearing, but, but, uh, but yeah, when she comes in with Macbeth, um, and then you get in this episode two great just wonderfully animated transformation scenes with Marina who hates doing truly hates doing that wall of the, the screaming and all that sort of stuff, but just doing a fantastic job at a, at emoting that physical pain of the transformation. And, and they're really well done. I mean, we, you know, down the road, we'll have other Demona transformation scenes and some of them are, uh, animated well and some are not but these two which set really s created the look of of those transformations both transforming her from uh the human form to the gargoyle form and then the other way around this really set this put the images in the audience's head so that even in later episodes when they weren't as well done they're remembering uh you know when it looked good uh and mm -hmm. so the full like get the spin around as like as she's like you get the full effect it was very right. well done i there's mean there's so some great boarding yeah it was just so much fun to see them human you know i think that uh like from very early on you want to know what the gargoyles look like as real people and it's in and and she was gorgeous still, right? So it was it was exciting to see that. It's, it's just also, as exciting as it was to see 
Elisa is a gargoyle. <laughs> so much fun mm-hmm. to be a gargoyle. <laughs> it, uh, it's also hilarious to me when uh, Demona walks out down a New York City street dressed as Demona. I mean, she's <laughs> no human, one blinks but an she's, eye. But yeah, it's just like, well, that's New York for you. That was our well, cloth on. <laughs> well, hails a taxi. <laughs> It hails a taxi, that's right. Brooklyn I, couldn't get a taxi to save his life, but Demona, no problem. Oh, I believe it. A few years ago when Bleecker Street Scout Willis, Bruce Willis's daughter, was walking around doing her uh, personal shopping while topless, just all day doing that, and almost no one batted an eye except for the paparazzi who were taking photos of her. So, yeah, Demona walking out of the um, police station like that and hailing a taxi. Yeah, New York City, definitely. <laughs> I'm from New York. We uh, don't bat an eye at a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful animation, and I love how painful that transformation is. It's not just a she just shifts yeah. shifts back and forward like Mystique, but um, no, Puck's, it's just Puck's gifts always come with a price. I love that line. Me too. I also love that um, Keith and Sally just have so much chemistry together. There's that little scene before. The gargoyles take off to Macbeth's mansion, and they're already talking like an old married couple, but in a healthy, positive way, not the bickering way where she demands a full report later. And um, it's, it's just, just it, it was fun. just like going off to work. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a cute um, scene. Yeah, it's, that's all. And then you know we have a couple scenes with Elisa and Morgan, who's the street our street cop who is also played by Keith and those are lovely scenes. And, um, you know, that those scenes are what gave me the idea down the road in the SLG comics to have Sally probably don't know this either. Uh, you know, in the, we continued the story in comic book form. Mm -hmm. And so we had an issue where, um, you know, Lisa and Goliath have just gotten closer and closer and closer. And finally, Elisa sort of, sits him down and says this this isn't going to work uh you know i'm in no hurry but down the road there are things i want out of life i want you know uh normalcy i want children i want you know and we can't have that and so they split up and then to sort of try and prove something that they can still be friends she comes up with the idea of let's go on a double date and so Keith goes out with Elisa's gargoyle clone, Delilah. So had we been voicing this, it would have been Keith and you playing <laughs> Goliath and Delilah on uh-huh. a double date with Elisa and Morgan, the cop that Keith played. So it would have been a double date <laughs> with two Sally's and two Keith's if we had actually <laughs> done the voices for this. And the end result of this is gets complicated. Talog stabs Goliath in the stomach. There's all sorts of problems. But uh, but the end result of all this uh, was that Elisa says, in essence, no, you're the you're the guy I love. Um, and he's like, but nothing's changed. You know, what about this normalcy? And and that's where the line normalcy is so overrated um, comes from because it's this idea. But really, the the chemistry that you and Keith had, even when he wasn't playing Goliath, is what gave me the idea to do that double date story, which, you know, I did, what, 
15 years after the show was off the air or something like that in a comic book. Um, uh, but I remembered 11. that 11. Okay. So I'm exaggerating. Um, <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, even that, those little scenes where they're just talking about, Elise is talking very pointedly about what's going on in her life. She's just not naming names and talking about, Oh yeah. I hang out with winged, creatures who fly through the city, you know, but she's basically saying, you know, if I just stayed home, I mean, it's a great sort of exchange because she's like going, all the monsters would be out of my life, the good ones and the bad. Um, And he doesn't really know what she's talking about. He just figures as a cop, they see monsters all the time, you know, Uh, and so he just has a general sense of what he's talking about. And he just gives her some really kind advice. Um, nothing earth shattering, just offers her a little sympathy and a little kindness. And, um, and it's I enough. I 100% fell in love with Morgan in that scene. <laughs> I love him so much. Yeah. We need a happy ending for Morgan somewhere down the road, but uh, um Hook him up with Delilah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Malibu might have something to say about that. Oh, but... <laughs> probably, probably. But um, it it was just, you know, there are two scenes with the two of them, one early on, which is which is nice, but the second one is just kind of lovely um, scene between them. And, and, uh, and this moment, I mean, the name of the episode is High Noon, which is not subtle obviously. Um, but we really took some inspiration from the film High Noon and the idea of the the one person who, you know, Gary Cooper knows he's walking into um, a trap into, in essence, you know, almost definitely to his death, right? But sometimes you've got to do the right thing no matter what. And, but it takes a real hero to do that, which is what Elisa is. And, um, so, you know, Demona literally comes up to her, reveals herself, says, I've captured the gargoyles and I'm inviting you to come and try to save them. And why am I doing this? Because either you won't show up and that will prove that I was right about all humans and that you're not some kind of exception, but that all humans are cowardly, horrible, whatever, you know? Or you will show up and I'll get to kill you. Um, And so either way, I win. And I think Elisa and the audience at that point are sort of going, yeah, I mean, it's Demona, Macbeth, and a cold stone gone evil. How can, and all the gargoyles are stone and chained. Uh, How is Elisa possibly supposed to? stop this and what she does to stop it is she's just incredibly smart she leaves her gun behind and you could sit there and go well that was dumb except by leaving her gun behind she knows she's appealing to Macbeth's got this weird sense of honor and so if it's like well if she doesn't have a gun then Demona you have to put your gun down and then it becomes a one-on-one fight between Demona who is not used to being a human and fighting without gargoyle strength. 
and Elisa, who is a well-trained police officer, uh, (laughs) police detective. And suddenly this battle looks much more 50-50 than it did five seconds ago, just because Elisa was smart enough to leave her gun behind and not bring it with her. And that's one of the things that I love about Elisa is that she's capable. She is a great shot. Sometimes she's almost a mythically great shot, Um, (laughs) you know, and she's got these fighting skills and all this stuff. But of course, what really is it's her intelligence and her sense of duty. And that's what wins the day in this episode. It's nothing the gargoyles do. They fall right into a trap. Um, It's not about all the magic shit that's going on in this episode. It's not, that doesn't solve any of the problems. Um, what solves the problems is Elisa's sense of duty and moral obligation and her intelligence. And I love that that's the solution to this. Um, it's, it's not even about the fight itself, although Elisa, you know, doesn't just hold her own. She's sort of beating, she's sort of winning, but that's not really what solves it. What solves it is how smart she is. And that's why you know, like when I was watching the episode last night, I was just like, wow, we, that was good. We did good. I was happy with that. I mean, honestly, hearing you talk about this, I think I think back and I and and honestly, this is probably one of the best characters I've ever played um, throughout my whole career, you know, that just has so many different sides of her as a woman. Um, these parts don't come around. And I got mine in animation. And um, but, you know, it, it's a it's amazing, dramatic stuff that uh, any actress would be proud and begging to play. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You brought thank it you. to life. I'm not kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and we talked about your chemistry with uh, Keith and you two sound terrific together all the time to the point that even today when we read the comic books, even though you're not voicing the comic books, we still have your voices in our heads because you two made such an impact that we're able to still feel that chemistry, even if it's just word bubbles on a page. It's Isn't it crazy? Because I could never not read that and think of Keep's voice. Like, Yeah, I mean, it, that's how I write it. I mean, I've got your voices in my head and, and I feel like I know what you guys would say in character, obviously. It's not like I know what Sally and Keith would say. I know what Elisa and Goliath would say, (laughs) but, uh, uh, but I, I hear it as if you guys were reading it. Although God knows it would give me so much pleasure someday to actually hear you guys reading it, but But it's in my head already, you know? That would be fun. Goliath, I just remember talking, because I had a different voice then. I'd be like, Goliath, I I was a little more gentle than I am now. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) Mm -hmm. But also the chemistry you had. I yeah. was never gentle. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'm a big mini head. <laughs> All right. And your chemistry with Marina was also terrific. And uh, we should talk about that scene as well, because that scene has always been a subject of debate among the fandom. Demona the f- doing those 
Oh, when, oh, and in the clock tower when she's doing like posing, like, oh, look at what a cute human I am. <laughs> yeah, people wonder yeah, what's going on. Go on. Uh, when those when that came back animated, I was wondering what was going on. <laughs> um, it's a, it's odd, but I I think we it looks good. So it was hard to justify, you know, when you're calling retakes, you, it's hard to sort of say, hey, you know, this animation that looks really good, we're, we don't want to use it. Um, and so then it becomes this thing of, you know, Bryn and, and Frank and I sort of thinking about it. Um, Bryn was the story editor of this episode. And, uh, it was written by Lydia Morano and Bryn story edited it. Um, thinking, all right, is there a justification for this? And we're like, yeah, she's taunting Elisa, you know? Um, and I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll buy that. It's not really what we were thinking about, but all right, <laughs> that works. Um, Here's a, yeah, go on. Retroactively, no, no. that's that's what it is. That's what well, it became, yeah. yeah. Well, here's a crazy yeah. case of fandom overanalyzing, as we often do. Yeah, she's trying to flaunt her superiority. Even as a human, I am more attractive because she, in some ways, especially when it comes to Elisa, is just that petty. And here's where the real overanalyzation comes in. Or is the reason she's comfortable making all those pin-up poses in human form because she doesn't think of Dominique's body as hers, you know, almost as a form of body dysmorphia, where it's like she's putting on a costume, granted involuntarily, because she's still insists to Macbeth that she is a gargoyle. Mm. Yeah, that was important to us, that, you know, Demona, whatever form she's in, thanks to Puck or cursed by Puck, however you want to look at it, um, still thinks of herself as a gargoyle. Um, and so, you know, it was essential that we get that in. And then she sort of begrudgingly says, but yeah, this form is useful sometimes. You know, I, uh, I can blend in and that comes in handy for my nefarious doings. But, uh, but, you know, we wanted to make sure it was very clear that Demona wasn't like, oh, I love being a human. You know, mm-hmm. that, that that Demona was always a gargoyle, um, no matter what form she was in. All right. And um, we, we've talked a little bit about the Cellar Voice cast, but if Sally, this is definitely your episode. But if this is any other actor's episode as well, it's got to be Michael Dorn. He does such a fantastic job that you forget that Xander Berkeley is not in this episode. Yeah. So Michael had to do this in a bunch of our episodes where Coldstone has got three, the souls of three different gargoyles uh, in them. Uh, one played uh, Othello, played by Michael Dorn, Iago, played by Xander Berkeley, and Desdemona, played by CCH Pounder. And, um, but we realized early on that no matter which personality was in charge, it, it wouldn't change the voice box. You know, uh, it's not like suddenly CCH Pounder's voice is going to come out of Coldstone's mouth. That doesn't make any sense. So Michael would just uh, take on whichever persona was in control. You know, we, we had in the, we always had in the scripts, I seem to recall, it's been a long time since I've looked at these scripts. Um, but, uh, you know, it would say Coldstone, and then in parentheses, it, 
it would say Othello, Iago, or Desdemona in it so that Michael always knew um, which personality was in control. But he did a fantastic job uh, at um, when he's Coldstone at playing whichever one. But uh, what's almost more interesting to me in this episode are the scenes um, sort of inside the mind of Coldstone between Othello and Desdemona, where Michael and Cece are playing off each other. Um, and you really see this contrast in their personalities, you know, um, Michael's like, this is as good as we're going to get. Let's just stay here. I don't want to bother with whatever's going on out there. That's none of our business. That's not our problem. And CC is like saying, no, no, that's, you know, that's not good enough. We need to, um, it's like she get has out some, there and some in essence, responsibility for protect the castle, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, then you have this moment that we talk about though animation mistakes, uh, oh, the hair man. color, the hair color, the hair color. When, when <laughs> in this sort of mental projection world, uh, Desdemona splits into three, uh, personas which is, you know, a hint that the weird sisters are there and the hint comes off. I'm not worried about that, but oh my God, every scene, the hair colors are different. I mean, there's supposed to be one, one white haired, one black haired and one blonde haired. And, and they are so inconsistent across those scenes. Um, And it just makes me cringe. And I, I'm sure those are things we tried to get retakes on and we just couldn't get them in, mm. in time. And, uh, uh, and we had to sort of live with it. Um, honestly, and that was why like, anytime the weird sisters appeared, I started with this thing, like on the boards in every single panel, I wanted marked who is which one. And, uh, and you know, that's extra work for storyboard artists. So there was tremendous resistance. Like, look, I'm busy being artistic. I don't want to have to label everything. Uh, I'm like, but they're identical. If you don't label them, we won't get, oh, they'll, it'll be fine. And then, of course, it never is. So, <laughs> Speaking of errors, Demona's glowing eyes in human form at the very end. I don't think was that, that was an error. error? I, think, I, don't think, I think that was a conscious choice. Um, that her the intensity of her anger is is literally melting through Puck's um, spell. Well, I mean uh, the 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 weird sisters are have just got done. So, you know, they're they're already talking about you can only put the uh, change somebody for so long. Like so, even Puck is like Demona's fighting against it constantly, and just I never saw it as an error. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we saw that as an error. I think that was quite intentional. Cool. Cool. Anyway, there are any other specific points in the episode that we haven't covered yet? Because, uh... well, this is diverting. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is diverting. You don't know the half of it. <laughs> yeah, not nowadays. I've seen some mixed responses to that scene. I still love it. I adore that whole scene. I know some people think the whole cat fight. Especially from a, if you're looking at it from a 2022, 2023 lens, is a little bit male gazy and juvenile, but uh, yeah. Elisa's kicking her butt. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, 
I'll look at that with that lens. We'll just enjoy it for what it was. <laughs> and and some men are juvenile, including yeah. me. Um, and and so you know, especially I think, you, especially me. So I think Iago, you know, speaks for a certain. I mean, he's not the good guy. It's not like I've got the hero saying that that stuff. Um, it's uh, it's Macbeth, the bad guy. So. Um, and, you know, from the best point of view, I even think he's like, when he says you don't know the half of it, he's not talking about the same kind of thing that Iago's talking about. Because there's backstory for Macbeth, lots of backstory. But Iago's just being a, a jackass. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't mind showing a jackass on screen. I don't think that's wrong. No. You know, I don't think it's a that's a bad thing to show it to show that so i have no regrets none i have lots of regrets but not about that (laughs) but really this this episode is just stellar and um it's a night it sets at least so much pipe for what comes later but really as a character piece for elisa maza who has been a great character up until now continues to be a great character going forward it really also humanized her in ways that Okay, she'd been humanized before, especially in Deadly Force, where we get a look at her broader family, see her in that vulnerable position. But this is a different kind of vulnerability. I just love seeing her weaknesses come forward, as well as her strengths. It highlights just about everything. It made her seem so much more human. Oh. <laughs> look how you said that. Look how you <laughs> We saw what you did there. <laughs> Like it, it does like it makes her like so relatable though like she's tired and yet she yeah she's i just love her in this episode and when she like crashes down next to goliath's statue at the end and just like yeah <laughs> this is my life whatever okay <laughs> what a great show you developed mm. yeah thank you and you know um my I, I had a question listening more to um, just some of this cast. And, you know, you think about when we were doing this and how diverse these characters are, d- the diverse the actors are that you hired. And it's a really um, a testament to just uh, hiring, you know, the best people for that job who who embody that character. Um, and that that's really all that mattered. Yeah, I mean, that was a priority for uh, me, Jamie, too, I think, uh, um, going all the way back, you know, it, uh, to the development of the series was just, uh, um, I, I don't know that it was any great, uh, you know, woke impulse so much as it was just like, I'm I'm bored. I, literally, it was like, I'm bored with white people. I'm, I'm over them. <laughs> I see them everywhere all the time. I I, seriously, it was like, let's do something different. Um, You know, it, it was on that level, almost selfish, you know, uh, just sort of like, we'll have a better show if we're got different points of view here. And that mattered to us who were all of us, I think um, we're making it, you know, let's, uh, you know, we'll get to it in a 
dozen episodes or so, but we're, you know, we did the world tour and we're like, okay, let's see, do an episode about Nigerian mythology. Let's do an episode about Native American um, mythology. Let's, you know, do an episode about Norse mythology. Let's just get out and do something different, you know, than the same thing that we see. Um, but it's New York, you know, it's a melting pot and it's yeah, exactly. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think that you feel it. Um, and I think I, part of what makes the show special is that you just have this melting pot of people and, and different perspectives and it feels good. And that's thematic for the show. I mean, a, I'd lived in New York for a few years, not very long, but a few years. And it's like, I want to see the Manhattan that I recognize, not yeah. some kind of weird white Manhattan that doesn't exist. That's A. And then B, thematically to the show, this is about um, a whole other species, you know, entering the picture who truly are another species, not just, you know, oh yeah, there are ethnic differences. No, this is, these guys have wings, they have tails, you know. Uh, and so if we're going to tell this story about diverse communities learning to live together, then my God, we have to tell a story about a New York that's diverse in the first place, you know, that reflects the reality. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, And so it all sort of, it, it just all sort of worked together that way. I think in, in uh, maybe we're a little ahead of our time. I think we were, but uh, mostly I think that uh, um, this was just the kind of show we were making. And, uh, and so making those choices, those kinds of choices made sense. And you mentioned bringing the earth to life. I know I do this, with every landmark, but I specifically remember the first time watching this episode, they know about Belvedere Castle. Well, that sure, was... I would see Shakespeare in the park at Belvedere well, Castle. I, I mean, we oh, uh, the series started off with, you know, like iconic places in New York, you know, so. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that's part of what made it so great because there were so many other shows that took place in New York that never did that. You might get Times Square or the Empire State Building or at the time the Twin Towers or a version of Central Park, but that was about it. Or the famous bridges, but Belvedere Castle, you never saw that on any TV show. I mean, you've got a castle in the middle of Manhattan. You've got a show about gargoyles. You're going to use the castle. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the cloisters before that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it, it was just so great for me as a New Yorker to see the city brought to life in this way and whether it's the architecture or as you were just talking about the people in it because this is going to sound so awful. I remember when uh, the, the new Spider-Man character, Miles Morales, debuted and he was half black, half Hispanic and some, there was some backlash to the character from the usual group of idiots I will refer to them as and talking about how forced that felt. And I'm thinking that character lives in New York. You can't go into New York without seeing a biracial person everywhere you turn. This is reality. <laughs> it's not some homogenous small town in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. No mom, pa can't hear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is uh, another reason why I 
one so Maza resonated so well with me, and it's a character that I've come to appreciate even more and more as I've gotten older. She's always been terrific, and Sally, this is why it's been a another reason why it's been such an honor to speak with you tonight, and why I was also mortified at the technical difficulties earlier on with this recording. But No worries. You know, it's been um, a pleasure to revisit this show and um, these memories and to revisit her. And it it really does make me want to dive back in, dive back into the shows with my kids um, because I do think this was an, an important show. And can I, can I ask how old your kids are now? Uh, my daughter is 18 and going off to college. And my son uh, is actually today his birthday. We're about to go to his birthday dinner. He uh, turned 14 today. Wow. So um, he is my daughter an anime is, kid. So uh, <laughs> he loves it. <laughs> yeah, they might they might like it. My kids, I mean, I don't know if you remember my daughter, Erin, who was born during the production of Gargoyles. Yes, it's been um, a long time. My gosh. So she's 28 now. Um, and my son's 25, but yeah, they, uh, they grew up watching old, uh, VHS tapes of gargoyles, uh, probably ad nauseum, but, uh, but yeah, they've, they watch it all. She was younger. And then, um, somehow my son saw it on accident and was like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Is that (laughs) Yeah, that's me. Like what? <laughs> um, but I think if I could get him into it, he would love it because he loves, you know, he just he like I said, he loves his anime, he loves his um video games. And, and- the show holds up so well. I mean, it's really oh, uh, it, it was American anime to me, like because I was a huge but again on, on anime. it was sophisticated and it was so grounded. And they were really great scripts. They they weren't just, you know, these sort of superficial stories. They had great meaning. And I, um, like, again, this has been a really wonderful conversation that has sparked um, so many memories of that time. And uh, I have to go back. And I, I just, like, I'm literally sitting here chomping at the bit to go, oh, my God, when we get back from dinner, I'm making everyone sit down and watch. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The five-part pilot. And <laughs> yeah, let's start from the beginning. <laughs> okay, Sally, then, is there anything that you want to, anything you, you can plug for us, anything you're working on right now that you can tell us anything about? And Well, the new, uh, b- two new seasons, new seasons of the Gilded Age, which I, um, this season, uh, uh, I'm just the executive producer of it this season because I moved over and I am uh, the director and executive producer of Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers on HBO. So um, that will be coming out. I'm not sure when we just, I mean, literally just finished shooting uh, like on Saturday morning at three in the morning. Um <laughs> like was, you do I, you like you do uh <laughs> except in the voiceover world and uh so that's what i've been working on uh, my new life of behind the camera 
So, but one day, one day, one day you'll bring me back in again. I'll do a voiceover of someone. (laughs) I'd I'd love that. I tried, tried to get you many times when you were, but you were up doing. Probably Eureka. Yeah. And our budgets are so low. I can't afford to have someone who's not in town. I know. I know. Eureka was a while. And it's so funny. I've always kind of fallen into this uh, world, you know, this kind of sci-fi world, even Eureka is that it's that same pocket. So when I have gone to any of the conventions, that's all they, it's like Eureka and gargoyles. (laughs) (laughs) Those are two good, those are two good credits though. I am legend, but those two are the ones. So. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Greg, what do you got going on? Well, I got this comic book called Gargoyles, which you might have heard of. Um, Issue one is out. Issue two comes out. I think it's out electronically now. You can buy it as an e-comic now. And I think uh, March. Oh, we're okay. So by now it's March. (laughs) Uh, So issue one, two, and three are probably out. in March, uh, and issue four sh- is either out or any minute now, depending when in March this drops. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, uh, I just got uh, so little time travel. I'm back in January as I speak right now, um, even though all you listeners are in March. Um, and I just got my uh copies of issue two uh today so uh and i think the book comes out tomorrow uh, so by march it should definitely be out and three should also be out by march and four should be out sometime in march well congratulations and that's the big thing okay thank you so much for joining us sally and thank you again for greg greg for you joining us because thank you even though you're kind of stuck with us so <laughs> i feel it's the other way around <laughs> you two are both <laughs> kind of stuck with me so it's, that is not a burden <laughs> so long to get here, but i'm i'm glad i made it i'm Just, so glad you i mean this is such oh a my. cool thing for me it took so long to get you I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. It's great for me. I'm just happy to hear all these stories and to talk to you. Well, wish your son happy birthday for us. Yes, I happy will. birthday. Happy birthday. Well, I will. He doesn't know that later on he'll have to watch Gargoyle. <laughs> <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> Here's your present. <laughs> all, all right. right. Well, th- thank you again, Sally. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. Join us next time for Outfoxed. Thank you for listening to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast, powered by the Spidey Dude Radio Network, located at spidey-dude.com. If you like this show, then please listen to Spectacular Radio, based on the Spectacular Spider-Man animated series, which features some familiar voices. You can also find these great podcasts, Clone Saga Chronicles, Make Mine Mayday, Amazing Spider-Man Classics, The Sal Buscema Podcast, and Books of X. All of this and more on the Spidey Dude Radio Network. And please follow us on Twitter at From Eerie. That's From E-Y-R-I-E. And join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Network for more exclusive content. Thank you.
shadows must be true to their shade.